Welcome back from your break. And if you're on the stream, welcome back. We take a break to so our children get to children's ministry. Please open in uh, your scriptures to the Gospel of Mark, which is found in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're devoting the month of July uh, to our series on the Gospel of Mark, which we began in late May. And we'll take a break in August as we do what we're calling deep cuts from the Psalms, meaning Psalms that we think are deeply encouraging and um, important, but that often don't get the attention that uh, we think they deserve. And so we'll begin that in August. But today we're in chapter three of Mark's gospel, and I am limiting our uh, consideration to verses 7 through 12 in a message I've called the crowd. Next week we'll look at verses 13 to 22 in a message I've called the called. So we're looking at the crowd today, and you'll see why I call it that in just a moment um, as we consider the life and ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, as Mark referred to him in chapter 1 again this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll read God's Word beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3. Lord, we desire to become even more familiar with your Son today. Father, we pray that that even in these five small verses that Jesus of Nazareth, your son, by the work of your spirit would, would loom large, not only from the pages of, of scripture, but in our hearts again, that we might be drawn to him. For in him we see, we find everything we need as we learn to be his followers. And I pray, Lord, you would address us through your word and allow my reflections on your word to encourage that activity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse seven, Mark chapter three. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea from, and be, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. 
and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is God's word. Thanks be to him for it. I don't normally introduce messages with a quote, rather tell a story or use an illustration, but this is a quote from a pastor that I think carries with it the heart of your pastors as we begin our journey through Mark's gospel. It has been observed by no less a scholar than Thomas Schreiner in his introduction to Jason Meyer's little book, which is available in the back on the gospel of Mark. The church history has not always been kind to the gospel of Mark. It has sometimes been seen as the least important gospel simply because it is the shortest. But no less a pastor than J.C. Ryle, who was a contemporary of Spurgeon, wrote this about this gospel. And I share this with you both to express my heart for you, but also to encourage you this summer to not neglect reading Mark's gospel, listening to Mark's gospel, not only when we're together on Sundays, but bring it into your week as you're doing other things which are important and valuable. Because in these few verses that are found here is the portrayal of a beautiful Savior that the other three writers of the gospel were influenced by. This is what J.C. Ryle wrote. It would be well, and I believe we have this quote to project, if professing Christians, meaning Christians who confess Christ as Lord and Savior, in modern days studied the four gospels more than they do. No doubt all scripture is profitable. It is not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles, Paul's letters, Peter's epistles, John's letters, if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Ought not the sheep to be familiar with the shepherd? Ought not the patient, he's quoting Mark now, to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride to be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior? Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. The Gospels were written to make men familiar with Christ, and therefore I wish all Christians to know the Gospels. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a word, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of his life which ought not to be precious to us. We should be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. J.C. Ryle, this classic book on holiness. I love that expression. Ought not, ought not we labor to be familiar with every line written about Jesus. Well, in these five verses, that's my goal, because I believe although these are familiar for many of us, I think there's some unfamiliarity with their 
substance, which means we miss, I've missed both the impact and the influence five verses in addressing the crowd can have with you and me in everyday life. So may God help me to serve you this morning as we work hard to become even more familiar. My main point this morning is this, Jesus' compassion for every kind of adversity we face invites us to turn to him in hope with everything we need as we learn to be his followers. We are going to observe Jesus' compassion up close. We are going to behold it in some familiar ways and some astonishing ways. And observing it and beholding it, we are going to, I trust, hear our Father's invitation to turn to Him in hope for everything you need, for everything I need, for everything we believe others need as we learn to be his followers. And discover in that turning the compassion of Jesus for our lives. Let's consider the scene. The scene beginning in verse seven, and what will be my first point, the crowd came to Jesus when they heard all that he was doing. Last week we read the culmination, the climax, it was quite a cliffhanger of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jerusalem and the Herodians, those who were loyal to King Herod, had little loyalty to Judaism as a religion besides their ethnic markers, but were loyal to Herod. And at the end of that section, verse 6, it said that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Christ how to destroy him. In other words, we've reached a juncture in the story of Mark's gospel, this earliest of the four gospels where the Pharisees have rejected him and his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Herodians with the Pharisees are plotting to destroy him, to put him away. And so we read in verse 7 then that Jesus withdrew from the synagogue where he was to the sea, to the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, verse 8, from Jerusalem, and I cannot pronounce this, Edumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. That word withdrew, I want to pause and note it. It's the only instance of this word according to William Lane, noted Mark and scholar in Mark. And it suggests, as it's used many times in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus withdrew to the sea, not to escape the opposition with the religious leaders. As we saw as Dave and I walked you through this, in some cases he picked that fight with them as he confronted them on their oral traditions and regulations when it came to 
keeping the laws of Moses. No, he withdrew, suggesting his need for retreat and solitude. Perhaps, like what we saw earlier in chapter 1, Jesus is withdrawing for the purpose of prayer. He was known to be a man dependent on prayer. But as we see, his attempt to withdraw was not successful. (laughs) Have you ever planned a vacation? Well, with all but a spreadsheet laying out your schedule for the purpose of withdrawal and refreshment and recreation and whatever R words you associate with vacation, and then is interrupted by a great crowd following you. I mean, the point of vacation, right, is to get away in some ways from the multitude, from the work, from the from the din of everyday life and to, with those closest to you, relax. If that's what Jesus is doing, then how astonishing it is to read not once but twice, Mark, draw to your attention and mine, that a great crowd followed him. In other words, interrupted his plans cut short his need for refreshment. Verse 7, a great crowd followed. Verse 8, the great crowd heard all that he was doing and followed him. In other words, he was notorious. He had a reputation. One scholar suggested his fame in this society, without the internet and social and billboards, had reached all the way to Inumea, a hundred miles from where this location is. Boy, word travels fast. Tires 50 miles to the south, word travels fast that way too. A hundred miles. So, a hundred miles, if we, after eating hot dogs, walk a hundred miles. That's going to put me somewhere, I think, in southern Connecticut, and I won't get there until August 1st with you, right? What would compel this group of people, I walk slow, this group of people to travel that far to him? They heard about him. They heard about him, it says. They heard reports of healings. They heard reports of deliverances from unclean spirits. They heard reports, as Mark's recorded earlier in the gospel, of a miracle worker that was both healing and delivering the oppressed. And so this great crowd came to him. And it's worth bearing, they came a great distance to find Jesus. Mark emphasizes that. His notoriety and reputation has increased so dramatically that these people come with a purpose. They're not simply dropping in to catch a glimpse of this itinerant preacher. They come with purpose. They come with passion. They come with intent, like you and I plan for our vacations. 
because the great crowd heard all that he was doing. They probably had heard he had healed a leper, that he had healed a paralytic, that he had healed the man with a withered hand, that he had healed many who had diseases, that he delivered those who were oppressed. That's just Mark's testimonies of Jesus's miraculous ministry. And did you notice when they find him, this even gets richer, this is where the details matter when we read the text and don't look at the notes of the study Bible and we don't consult the commentary, but we just read the text. It says in verse 10 that they not only found him, they touched him. I don't know about you, but I have to give you permission first to touch me, right? Seriously. But recently we were at a concert 14,000 of our friends in the rain. And we had people touching us all concert as they were swaying. And they weren't asking for permission. And I've got to say, not because of health concerns, but just my own sense of personal space. Music was good, but I wasn't digging it. I was like, can you stay in your circle? And I got mine. And it's raining for Pete's sake. I don't want you on me. And you Or you go to one of your every year victory parades for your sports teams. And you get there two hours and you're still 10 feet deep. And you've got your children and you're sort of like pushing them forward and you're getting these glares. And, but you get the kids forward and the dads or moms are looking at you and they see the kids and that sense of my life is about to be ended shortly ends. And, or you're at a concert right? And you're in the front, not the back. And the opening band finishes and they strike that first note of the new band that's coming out, the headliner. You feel this surge from the back. You're getting pushed. You're like, we probably shouldn't have bought these seats down here. I'd rather be up in the, you're getting off the L before after a Red Sox game. And boy, everyone's really in good mood about the Red Sox these days. And you, you feel that crush of people as you're getting onto the L or getting off. And you get where I'm going with this? A great crowd follows Jesus and they push to the front to touch him. What would compel people to walk great distances and push others out of the way to touch him? You know. I know too. There's no urgent care in Caesarea. There's no antibiotics. There's no medicine that you or I are taking. I had to take some for my back today. There's no back spasm patches you can put on. There's no, there's no hospitals that offer surgery. You got Jesus. And they're desperate. So can you picture the scene? This is chaotic. While I love depictions of this in film that help engage our imagination, this is chaotic. This is unruly. Disciples are not there organizing the crowd and giving vouchers for when you can see them. It is. And there he is. And it says he's ministering to all of them. 
a mass of suffering humanity descending upon him. And yet these people are experiencing something, as one scholar pointed out, that they've never experienced before with many of their illnesses and paralyses and oppressions. They're experiencing a sensation of hope because they've heard what Jesus is doing. They're experiencing something they've never experienced before in light of their disability or, or deformity or oppression. Hope that this miracle worker can change this. The crowd came to Jesus because they heard all that he was doing. Would you have come? Would I have come? One person pointed out, I think it was Jason Meyer and his helpful devotional on Mark's gospel. If you were a father or a mother and your child lay sick and dying and you heard a report about him, oh yes, you, you would have come. You would not postpone leaving for a moment. You would be out the door. Or maybe your friend who was seriously ill with no hope or relief. You would come with him or her, right? Or maybe you yourself are just desperate with this faint hope because of what you've heard. And you're not arriving peacefully. They're not waiting patiently. This is not an organized event. This is all happening suddenly, unexpectedly, spontaneously on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. A great crowd descends upon Jesus. And just as you get to the front of the line, this person to your right speaks in a voice you may or may not recognize. And it says this in verse 12. Verse 11, the unclean spirit saw Jesus and fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. That might have pushed people back a little bit. Sickness, desperation, and now unclean, demonic, oppressive spirits saying to the miracle worker, you are the son of God. I'm not trying to dramatize. I'm just trying to, if I were there in that moment, the miracles for healing are one thing. The presence of the supernatural demonic, which I know little about, is another thing. It would be frightening. Not a word from our savior about step back, form a line, don't touch me. He does speak to the unclean spirits and with a word silences them as he demonstrates his mastery over their power and delivers presumably the people who are oppressed. It's not lost on me that even though these people were oppressed, they still made their way to Jesus, their deliverer. It's not lost on me that 
The last time a satanic presence addressed Jesus, he addressed him as the son of God, Mark chapter one, and said, if you are the son of God, remember that in the wilderness? Satan was testing him. You've been fasting. Turn these stones into bread. And end, end your suffering. If you throw yourself off the Temple Mount, angels will protect you. If you bow your knee to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. He's testing him. Are you the real deal? Are you the real son of man? Are you the suffering servant that came to suffer for the sins of the world? Or is my promise of provision and protection and power all the things that I'm tempted to wrap my Christianity up into is my offer of that, Satan says to him, enough to cause you to not submit to your father and obey his will, your mission. If you are the son of man, Satan said, and now these unclean spirits say, Son of God, you are perhaps, perhaps testing him in light of his experience in the wilderness. They have no knowledge of the plan of the cross and how they will ultimately strip demonic powers of their spiritual authority. But certainly their acknowledgement of his identity stands in stark contrast to the Pharisees who rejected him just a few verses ago. To the Herodians said no. The unclean spirits recognized Jesus as the son of God as he silenced them with a word. Two scenes, a crowd that comes to see a miracle worker and the son of God who threw a through a word, silences unclean spirits because he is the son of God and his power masters any opposed to him. Two things to consider as we apply this simple. The first is this, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the desperation, in the midst of Jesus' need for rest, in the midst of growing opposition, in the midst of adversity. Did you notice Jesus' compassion is inextinguishable? His compassion never ends. Even though physically he must have been weak, even though just as a person he must have felt the crush of the crowd. This is the only instruction in Mark's gospel where Jesus says, ready me a boat so that I don't get crushed. I'm gonna climb onto the boat if this gets a little too crazy, right? This boat's gonna be prominent in the next two chapters because he's gonna teach from it, but here it's his It's kind of his mobile escape route. 
so that we'll notice his compassion for those who are experiencing adversity. And the hope, the hope that that instilled in those who came to him. My final point, our greatest hope when we encounter adversity, temptation, sin is that we have a faithful savior who has overcome it all. The crowd came to be healed. They were responding to reports of a miracle worker. There's no indication that they were interested in his teaching. There's no testimony later that says they joined his mission. They came for what he could do for them, which was in hope, rescue them from their adversity. And he did it. Do you see that he did it? I love this hymn. We sang it at our wedding. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Great is thy faithfulness. Not great is thy faithfulness when I'm a good disciple and faithful to you. The real deal, the Son of God, is full of compassion when we face adversity. So Jesus invites you, and he invites me too. In our adversities, whether they be large, overwhelming, life-defining, lower level, minor keys, disappointments, to turn to him, to turn to him, and he will not may the hope of the gospel. This is where we have to be harder on ourselves. I have to be harder on me. I know what the gospel says, but if the gospel message that I know is not triggering within me hope that causes me when I face adversity, whether it's a stub toe or a pullback or something more life-shaping to turn to him, I functionally may know the gospel, but it is not, it is not working well in my followership. But when I do turn, when I say, Lord, I am weak, I am vile, I am not strong, I am feeling adversity here, have mercy in Jesus' name. This passage as a testimony encourages my hope. He does it. And that's what we offer to non-believers. Not clean up your act and come to Jesus. Not go to church first and come to Jesus. Not come to Jesus. Turn to him. He has mercy for you. Yes, yes, we're sinners. He will speak to you about your sin. But he heals these people. He cares for their adversity before he calls them to follow him. Did you see that? It's astonishing to me. Secondly, by way of application, is that one scholar argues that the 
reason the demonic forces speak Jesus' title, Son of God, Son of God, is because in Semitic culture, if you could name something, you exercise a degree of control over it. Bad analogy, no comparison. But we're talking about this a little bit in a positive light, the importance of a name or title to get a response out of someone. When parents name a child, that child learns quickly to respond to your, my voice and their name, right? We exercise a degree of authority and control over them. So when they say to him as he's praying for this individual who comes in that doesn't even know they're oppressed, you are the son of God, it could be. It could be the demonic in that person seeking to somehow master or control Jesus and what he's going to do. Could be. They're right in identifying who he is, but they're incapable of following him. They have no interest in following him. They're part of an army, a legion of spiritual set against him. And so the second point of application to stir hope within our hearts is although the unclean spirits knew who he was, they could not control Jesus. And when we come to him, needy as we might be, desperate as we certainly may feel, This gospel, which was made to make us familiar with Christ, reveals that he and he alone is in control of your life and mine. And therefore, yes, Lord, deliver me, but I surrender all to you again. Neither the crowd nor those oppressed by unclean spirits are models of discipleship. One depicts his compassion for them. The other models his absolute authority and mastery over them. But as the savior of the world, we'll need to go to the next section where he calls the 12 to see what true discipleship looks like. But this week as we labor as we labor to be familiar with every line that is written by Jesus, I want to encourage you as we conclude that your greatest hope in mind when we encounter adversity, temptation, even our sin, is that we have a faithful Savior who has overcome it all. And so he invites us to turn to him in hope for everything we need as we learn to be his followers. We are called to follow him. And as we turn to follow him again, he calls us to turn to him with hope in him. It would be wise for a moment to consider not all, many, not all were healed that day. Not all were delivered that day. Many were. It's miraculous. But on this day, 
where we live in light of what Jesus did on the cross at the end of this gospel, as we consider the implications how the compassionate Son of God, who is Lord of all, willfully, joyfully submitted to his Father's mission and offered his life as a payment, a ransom, as Mark will speak of it in chapter 10, I believe, for the payment and deliverance of sinners of their sins and rescue from God's judgment and justice in order to be forgiven, in order we not only be forgiven, but reconciled to God so that we could belong to him and follow him. We who live on this side of the cross and resurrection, we who know how this gospel story ends, We receive him through a personal relationship by faith that we might follow him for he alone. He alone, Bauer Evans, he alone brings us hope. Friends, what was the most helpful, challenging theme from today's message. Who is Jesus revealed to be in this story? What do his actions and words teach you about his compassion for every kind of adversity you face and his call for you and I to be a follower of him and not merely a face in the crowd or those who seek to control him? How is he calling you to respond to him today. One closing thought. Temporal provision will always gather a crowd. Miracles. The promise of prosperity. even a jam band worship team. God's provision always gathers a crowd. But the call to follow Jesus is the call to follow him. I don't know, Linda and I reflected on it, how many of this crowd that day were there on Pentecost among the 120 that became the first Christians, or would later hear these same disciples preach the gospel, they experienced miraculous provision from the Lord. But if they didn't receive the substitute and the risen Savior, as blessed as that miracle was, they missed the most important part. We will not miss that if we turn to him, amen? If we keep the main thing, the main thing, which we have done for 22 years, if this shortest of gospels becomes familiar to us and not neglected because it's short, but every word, every action, every moment becomes treasured in our heart, then God through it will keep our hearts riveted on him. I want that. I want that for you. I want that for us. I 
believe God wants that because that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let's pray. Lord, as we conclude with this song, we are grateful for the true story of how great crowds sought out your son and the compassion Jesus demonstrated to all of them as they turned to him. We are both humbled and in awe of his authority over unclean spirits and satanic opposition and the victory that he has won by remaining true to his father's mission, not only on this day, but all the way to Calvary. And we want to learn, Lord, we want to learn how to grow in our followership of him by turning when we face adversity in hope. So teach us to do that more. Disciple us as you disciple the 12 that we might learn to be your followers more and more. And as we do, Lord, may we share the good news. Bring the good news and display the reality of the good news to others in our lives whom you are pursuing through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.